So this morning we continue our study in Romans. We are in Romans uh, chapter 6. And we will look at uh, verses 6. Yeah, actually verses 6 as a kind of transition into verse 7 all the way down to verse 12. So we'll look at a few verses this morning. And we want to look at how Paul deals with the Christian sanctification. And also how he deals with the positive effects of sanctification. And so we know that as Paul has been writing, uh, just to bring us uh, into focus as to where we are, Paul has in many ways argued effectively, has disproved the arguments made against him, the accusations that we talked about, whereby his opponents who were guilty of teaching that which was against the law of Moses were accusing him of teaching that which was against the law of Moses. And so Paul answered them and he explained for the Romans in the historical context with which we find our passage, but also explains to us, the church, why it is essential for us not to even think that we could continue in sin and somehow bring about holiness and the righteousness of God. And so he repudiates that with the fact, the divine fact and the divine providence of the resurrection of our Lord. And with him, us being resurrected to the newness of life. And so we talked about that the last time we were together. And Paul continues to build in this way all the way through the passage. He's going to deal with how might we function as the Lord has cleansed us of unrighteousness. And he has done so by our position, but he's also done so by our walk. And that doesn't mean that we cease from Sinning in this life, it means that we cease from habitually sinning in such a way that we are preemptively attacking the grace of God. And that when we sin, we have such a intimate walk with Christ, such a tender conscience, knowing that we're endowed by the Holy Spirit of God in such a way that when we're walking with Christ, we know that if we offend him in his glory, we are quick to repent and to turn away from it and to turn to him. And those moments as you are walking in holiness become more and more not only apparent, but more and more evident. And so we can see the evidence of our lives uh, that we are being cleansed of this unrighteousness uh, by progressive walking with him as we have been done positionally and being raised up with him. And so this morning, I want to focus our thoughts on the continuation of Paul's argument, but also it's not simply argumentation for the point of argumentation. Paul is helping us understand how is it that we walk with Christ? And not only how is it that we walk with Christ, what are the effects of us being raised up with him? And so you have the argumentation to refute the error, but you also have the doctrine that he brings forward to encourage our, our hearts in our walk with the Lord. And so what Paul is dealing with is the positive effects of the Christian sanctification. And I believe that that would be an apt title, uh, the positive effects of the Christian's sanctification. In other words, as I've said, what does it look like for the Christian to be cleansed from sin and to live according to the righteousness of Christ? What does that look like? And so for these few verses that we'll look at this morning... 
Paul will explain that to us. He'll explain what does it look like for the Christian to be cleansed from sin and to live according to the righteousness of Christ. His case is clear, and we know it's clear. We know that the only time in which people would charge Paul with being unclear would be those who were doing so at the expense and destruction and peril and danger of their own souls, because that's what Peter said about them. And Peter admits that there's a a conglomeration of people who are out there trying to twist Paul the Apostle's teaching. And the reason that that takes place from the uh, in the annals of spiritual warfare is to dethrone the teachings of Christ in the hearts of his people. But also because there was a very real push to bring people back into apostate Judaism. And so Paul was leading people out. He was leading people out of that. And the world system will, in a a few short years, the world system will begin to oppose Christianity in such a way so as to want to draw her into paganism and begin to persecute the church at large. So we see that his case is clear. The new birth, the new birth, it is an answer to the charge that we can continue in sin so that grace will abound. It is the answer to what we called antinomianism. And if you remember that that is a word that means against law or smoothed out against the law, the charge that Paul himself was teaching against the Mosaic law. And Paul is saying, no, really, you are because you don't understand the law's purpose is to reveal sin, not to save and thus point us to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But it is the new birth and the new birth is. The doctrine by where we understand that we are born again. And even more so, it's that we are to be united to Christ and united with Christ and united in Christ. And I would say you're united with him in his life and in his resurrection. United with him in his life and in his resurrection. And there are passages that deal with this, even such as John 15, when it talks about abiding in Christ. If you look at Ephesians 4, when it talks about walking with Christ and it talks about doing so and at the same time preserving his teaching, unity of the faith according to teaching. And so you have his life and his resurrection. And by his life, I don't mean that we live his life. I do mean that we live like Christ in such a way that his life is vicariously charged to the account of the elect. His perfect obedience Obedience that we did not have. And so we are united with him by his life and by his resurrection. And I would say by the power of those two things as well. But it is also the new birth is to be credited his righteousness. It's to be credited his righteousness. It's to be raised up with him. And it leads to a life that is holy for sure, but not only holy. It leads to a life that is at war with sin and opposed to sin in yourself and in others. And so this is what Paul is dealing with. And so I want to just read 7 to 12. I realize it poses itself between verse 12 and 13 as a cliffhanger. But I want to read 7 to 12 so we have a context with which we're speaking. So verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. And then verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, he's further explaining seven. We believe that we shall also live with him. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, now he's relating the theater of Christ's life and resurrection to the walk and the sanctification that is the cleansing of unrighteousness for the believer. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And believe me when I tell you, verses 13 to 23 explain this in great divine detail. So, what Paul is dealing with and what he first explained, he first explained what causes the believer to walk in the newness of life. What causes them to walk in the newness of life? And so I believe today that many Christians are dealing with commands from people who stand before them and teach. They're dealing with imperatives. That's another way of saying commands in that sense. And they're being commanded to do things. And what is not behind those commands and what that, that command is not motivated by is doctrine. It's typically motivated by the collective, the mindset of the collective, the attendance and faithful attendance at some assembly or some program. But that's not what Paul is after. What Paul is saying is that what happened at the cross and what happened in the life of Christ is the power by which you are to do what you do. And it is the evidence by which you do what you do. And that is to live a life that's holy. And so he's explaining again what causes the believer to walk in the newness of life. And so whenever we're talking about how am I to live a life that's holy, we begin with doctrine. We begin with what Christ has accomplished in his life, in his perfect sinless life, his vicarious life, his perfect righteousness in that life, him never ceasing to earn the divine pleasure of God the Father, him going to the cross and laying down his life for the elect, and him being resurrected unto glory and power forever. Amen. So when we're talking about sanctification, that's where we begin. It's not a list of first primarily do's and don'ts. We start with doctrine and the power and the source of all this. And I say that because what Paul is against, what he's attacking, what he's fighting for and is essentially the holiness of the Christian. But he's also dealing with the purity of the church in the holiness of the Christian. And so you have movements today and I'm, I'm talking about all across the board. And certainly here we deal with those features of modern evangelicalism that are conservative in their speech, but very liberal in their action. And I say that because it is not the believer's ability to perform something for his or herself. You have to tie all of this to Christ. He is the motivation and he is the source. He's the motivation. You do what you do if you're a Christian because you want to honor Christ. You don't do things because you fear reprisal from men. You fear being locked out of some fraternal order that men have erected as a point of status. You're doing things because I am motivated by Christ. And if I'm motivated by Christ, I'm not only doing it for his honor, but he is empowering me to do it. 
And therefore, you know what happens when people notice his work in me? I boast in him alone. I give him all the honor. I give him all the praise. I give him all the glory. So what we're talking about is holiness as it relates to the power of Christ in the believer. That is our standard. So when we're talking about holiness, when we're talking about what so and so is walking with Christ, we don't begin to rattle off all the things that they've done well in their lives. We begin to rattle off all the perfect things that Christ has done and has charged in my account. And as Paul says, I make my boast in him. It's him. He's accomplished this in me. Whenever I am successfully fighting a war against sin in my members or against sin in others, be it error, false teaching, glory and praise to Christ alone. It's him. He's given me that. He's given us that as believers. So what Paul is is dealing with is the power of Christ in the believer. And I, I seek to rescue that as we look at Romans, because that is certainly said. It is certainly not done the power of Christ in the believer it is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and it's inherent not only in the new birth but it's inherent in the new life so when I see Christians living holy I'm seeing the power of Christ's resurrection I'm seeing the power of the Holy Spirit in them so that's what we are focused on we're focused on the new life because it's either the new life or it's not It's either the new life or it's the old man. So that's what Paul is dealing with, because he's dealing with people who are saying that there's power in something in somewhere else. There's power in the law. There's power in obeying things that we have erected. And I'm not even talking about the Mosaic law because there is true power in the Mosaic law. But there is not power when you take the law, pervert it and add and take away things from it. On your side of it. As you seek to live your life and honor Christ and walk with him and promote both in life and testimony the distinctions between yourself and everything else that's called Christianity, you're dealing with the same battle, except people are calling scripture things that scripture is not. And so you're not only demonstrating what scripture is, but you're living according to scripture's power. Demonstrate this is what scripture really teaches, but it's also how scripture really works in man. And in me. So listen, I remember when I first came into the faith, I was enthralled, enthusiastic about what it meant to take up the cross of Christ. And I heard that so often. I have to take up my cross. And I believe that those things should breed a certain true joy and enthusiasm in us. Because we take up the cross of Christ to live with him. But we also take up the cross of Christ to live for him. So we have to connect that because typically in the conservative evangelical mindset, and I'm saying this because Paul is trying to paint out for us divine things from heaven itself, from Christ himself. But listen, this march with Christ, it certainly includes a death. And people talk about taking up the cross and the death that they may have to face, be it in the face of persecution or enemies. And certainly those things are out there. But what we have to realize 
And we will get this wrong if we fail to realize this. Once you take up that cross, it is a death to the flesh. It is a death to the former life. And it is a death to sin. So we always hear take up the cross as if we have to march away from one movement into another movement. But I'm saying the take up the taking up the cross, being a true disciple of Christ, is walking away from the old man. So so many are willing to walk into the next theater of wherever they believe that they ought to be, but they don't walk away from the old man. And that's what Christ is dealing with in the teaching of Paul the Apostle as he wants us to walk with him. It is death to the flesh. It is death to the former life. It is death to sin. Paul is referring to that induction in verse 7 into being a Christian disciple. A disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ. You'll notice the first distinction between true Christianity and everything else is that true Christianity calls you to take up the cross and follow Christ in the truest sense of it. I would say today's error is to tell you to take up the cross and follow Christ. But in between all of that, we add everything that you have to do for man to get to Christ. And what I'm trying to teach you this morning is that you have to walk with Christ. You have to walk with Christ. You have to believe with every sense of your being that he can be known, that he will be seen, and that he has come and that he will come again. And so you walk in your life as if those things are true. Because where the enemy is coming to assault this doctrine of being united with Christ according to the power of his life and resurrection is to put an image of the cross up, put images of what they believe Christ looked like up, to put all these things before you, to put showmanship, performance, musical musings, everything. They put it before you. And what they're really offering you is here's how you get to us. But we're saying this leads to Christ. I want to give you certainty. I want to give you the same kind of certainty that Paul the Apostle gave when it became his time to give a defense. When he said, we're really going to follow Christ. We're going to seek after Christ. We're going to live for him. We're going to honor him, especially in the midst of those who were saying, well, no, we know the God of Israel and you are certainly leading people away from him. So Paul was concerned with that. But I am not promoting, as I've said the last time, I'm not promoting the false teaching that is called sinless perfectionism. I'm not promoting that. What I am promoting is the question that we must answer, and it is a question of mastery. Mastery. Who has mastery over your life? That is what the word of God teaches concerning holiness and righteousness and living righteously. Who has mastery? Well, you know what, preacher? I have two masters. Well, then you're a slave to one. And if your master is opposed to the God of truth, then you really serve that master. But you can only have, Jesus said, this isn't my word, this is what Jesus said. You can only have one master. You cannot serve two masters. You only have one. So who has mastery over your life? Be even more specific. Is it righteousness or sin? Is it righteousness or sin? I'm beginning to speak in the language of even John the Apostle. We love John the Apostle as we love all the apostles because John the Apostle was very black and white. It's either this or this. If it's this, it's this. If it's not this, it's not this. Very black and white. 
Is it righteousness or sin? And I'll tell you that you have to continually test yourselves in these things. We all do. We have to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith and then fall before God and praise him when we prove true before him because of his power in us. But having said that, it answers the question, am I a Christian or am I pretending? Am I a Christian or am I pretending? The question of mastery is one that answers that direct question for yourself. So throughout the text so far, as I've mentioned it, Paul has provided for us distinction between those among the self-righteous Jews who believed they were righteous and they would kill for the righteousness that they uh, imposed on themselves versus those who believed they were sinners and could only be made righteous by the blood of Christ. Thus, by faith, they were justified by his grace and granted forgiveness of sins and his righteousness charged to their account. I'm hoping to just lead you not only in this, but to help you understand why today's Christian testimonies are so weak. Quote unquote Christian testimonies. Why so many people have no themes of holiness pervading their speech in their lives. They simply make a justification for everything and they want you to buy into it on some emotional exchange that you're supposed to make with them becomes because somehow the Christian life is just too hard. That's what they suppose. But what I'm saying to you is that the Christian life is a very black and white thing because it is either you're endowed with Christ's power to do as he pleases, as he's commanded, or you're not. Or you're endowed with Satan's power to oppose Christ. It really is black and white. But here, as I mentioned, it is Paul's concern to go directly into the historical Features of our text. It is Paul's concern to help believers in Rome understand how they must live with Christ and what do they die to when they have been saved by him. And so we have to redirect our thoughts to that because today death is on the forefront of every individual at this point. Raging debates about health. And the consequences of being unhealthy or healthy. With little thought, little attention given to what do I die to in this life? How do I live in this life? It's this great preservation. You have people who will take all preserving means to preserve themselves. And yet they will do nothing in the face of their sin and repent and leave it and be right before God and thus live eternal life. But that's been the case in every generation. So Paul deals with it. We thank God for the timeless features of the word of God and the eternal features of it. But in verse six, as we back up, the new birth essentially is what Paul is dealing with. And we dealt with it a little bit last time, last week. But the new birth to be born again is the end of the old man. It's the end of the old man. And Paul marks off that event by saying the old man is crucified with Christ. He's been put to death. He's been crucified. It is why when we think of the crucifixion of Christ, this is what some might consider a paradox, something that can't be understood in Christianity. When we see the crucifixion of Christ, and we talked about this in Matthew and even in Acts, we see victory. We see triumph. 
Because not only has Christ laid his life down, but he has also crucified the old man. We see there our sins laid upon him and the old man done away with him and him defeating death and purchasing redemption and salvation and an eternal kingdom and allowing us into it and to be. And we're raised up with him as joint heirs and our graces there ratified and we're sealed into that great day of redemption. That's what we see at the cross and we more so see it further along in the resurrection, in the resurrection. Because if Christ had simply remained there, we could say, yes, the old man was crucified. But then what do we make regarding uh, what do we make of it regarding the new life? What do we do with the new life? Yeah, it was crucified. But what replaces it? Moral reform? Good behavior? No, it is the same power that raises us up with him in newness of life. And so you see that because there the new man is raised up with Christ to live with him for Christ. And so, again, what we deal with when we're dealing with this, the, especially the charge that Paul faced, it is a question of nature and freedom. The believer, listen to this, when saved by Christ, is not autonomous. It's not autonomous, meaning he doesn't act independently. He doesn't act in such a way that he now can just do what he wants. A believer is a slave. He's a slave in this sense to righteousness. Not to men who are teaching you about righteousness. You're a slave to righteousness. And you're a slave to the eternally righteous one. And so you do his bidding. You do his bidding. You don't follow the voice of another. And against that, you're no longer a slave to sin because you were once. And that is what Paul is dealing with in verse 7. I recognize when we look at this text, especially, this is why we keep jumping back and forth between the historical and the contemporary sense of this. But I recognize that there are so very many today who want to sin with impunity. They want to lift their hands before people. They want to sing with the most beautiful voice about Christ. They want to attend everything Bible related, but they would like to keep sinning with a certain respectability behind it. They want the world's ambition. They want to be able to live off the world's system, but they also want to dress up in religious garb. I recognize that that's the case today. I recognize that there are those who want to come into this life of, of, of Christianity in and of themselves. And they want to continue to live for themselves. But at the same time, they've been taught what to say, what boxes to check off. I recognize that that's out that that is out there. They want to claim liberty in Christ. But here's the thing. If you're going to claim to be one who is who has liberty in Christ, that you're truly free in Christ. It's not just freedom for its own sake. You have to bear the evidence. You have to have the evidence. So you can't say I'm free in Christ and bear no evidence that the old man has been crucified with him because then you're not in Christ. It's not just verbal. None of this is just verbal. It's how your confession plays out in your life. So you have to have the evidence. You have to have the evidence that you have been crucified with him and that you have been raised up with him because those divine events happened. 
And Paul is saying the new life, the new birth relates to those things. So those things happen. So it's not on the table to argue the historical basis for the resurrection. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Paul's saying it happened. John says, if you don't believe that, you're not confessing Christ. And essentially you are an antichrist. So for argument's sake, we don't even argue and put ourselves in the positions of demons and devils. We know it happened. Here's what Paul is saying. If you know it happened, here's how it affects you as a believer. It deals with holiness. So as I've said, when you're dealing with holiness, you are dealing with features of the perfect, sinless, vicarious life of Christ. Vicarious in that it is things that are charged to my account that I did not do for myself that he did perfectly, such as his perfect obedience, such as his righteousness. Okay, and then also the evidence of his resurrection. So now you understand or you're starting to understand why those things are under assault in the most scholarly circles, because men want to live like pagans, demons and devils. And so they question the historicity of those things so that they can live like pagans. And put on religious garb. But you have to bear this evidence because those things, in fact, did happen. It is why we are gathered here today. It is why even against the war that goes on against you personally to keep you from fellowship, to keep you from the word, to keep you from gathering together in this thing, in this true thing called Christianity. It is why not only do you fight for it, but you fight for it successfully and you come together by virtue of the power of his life and his resurrection. That's that's why we come together. It's not only that we come together to memorialize it, we certainly keep it at the forefront of our thoughts. But that same power brings us together all the time. That is the nature of fellowship. That our fellowship is even endowed with his power. Our walking together is endowed with his power. But those who assault this, they, they don't want to walk in the newness of life. Those who want to justify their sins and continue in this Pattern of disobedience while verbally saying all the things that Christians, they believe Christians would say. They don't want to walk in newness of life because the old man is still alive and they can't kill the old man by themselves. He has to die that death with Christ as our sins were placed on him. It is not only ability that keeps them from it. It's not ability that keeps them from it. It is why all these things of moral reform, you can certainly clean up a person to do things. The problem with that is you have to continue to motivate them through means that aren't always spiritual. So it's not only a question of ability. That is what typically even an authentic counseling movement does. It tries to motivate people, bring more flowers, do some homework, treat each other more kindly, try to use soft words. And you can create a professional environment, but you can't deal with the nature. Once the nature is dealt with, you don't have to motivate me to do anything because I'm motivated by Christ and it flows from him through me out to you. And so it's the question. It is the question of a nature. Have you been born again? That is the question. Have you been born again? This is what Paul is dealing with, and he's dealing with it amongst the religious men. 
If you sin continually without any war against sin, without any victory against sin, while justifying your sin, how have you truly been freed from sin? How? Upon what basis? Well, we all struggle. No, that's not how. I need to know how. Oh, well, I do this. I, I do this. I perform this. I make sure that I do X, Y, and Z. No, no, no. You're giving, you're giving me reform. You're reforming the old man. How has the old man been killed? Who killed him? Who slayed him? Who then stands in his place? This is what Paul is after. And in our context, he is against those who claim he is teaching the only alternative to living outside of the law is the type of lawlessness that sins but claims the grace of God. But I would say things have shifted in the modern context with which we find ourselves that today that is not the claim of the self-righteous. That's not overall the claim of the self-righteous that somehow we're living lawlessness. Maybe the world sees it that way because they don't understand it and they never will. But the self-righteous wear antinomianism as a badge of holiness. But it should never be. Because Paul wrote, may it never be. It should never be. Then the effect, the benefit, the blessing of the new birth and the newness of life is holiness. That's what Paul is teaching. Look at verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We believe we shall also live with him. It's not only that we should live with him. We believe it. If this Work of salvation has truly taken place in my life and the sanctification of his cross has taken place in my in my life. I believe I live with him. I believe it. It's not up for challenge. I don't bring in the world's philosophies to justify my cause against. I believe it. I stand on it. And when you tell me, you know, brother, you don't live like you believe it. I need to fall on my face and confess before the Lord. Forgive me for my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me. Verse nine also deals with it. But I tell you that what Paul is explaining, because there is a lot said about holiness and I, I, I want to be clear. It, he's explaining the kind of holiness that is set against unrighteousness and is at war against sin. He's not proclaiming a certain monastic or separatist holiness. Where if I just lock myself in an office and prepare sermons. And if I just put a script together for the next, I'm from conference to conference, terminal to terminal, then somehow I'm holy. He's talking about the kind of holy that is set against sin wherever it may be found. Be it found in me, be it found around me, I'm set against it. And if I'm set against it in myself first, I'll be set against it wherever I find it. That's what he's dealing with. To verse 9, knowing that Christ, it is in the feature of not only belief, but knowledge. It's what we know. It's what we know. The Christian life and the confession is about what we know. It deals with knowledge. It's not just, hey, follow blindly because I said so. It's what we know. 
You've studied these things, Paul is saying. You know these things for yourself. You've seen the ashamedness of your own sin and your sinful life. You're watching the shame of the law as it's being perverted, not the true law. You're not watching the shame of the Mosaic law. You're watching the shame of apostasy as it perverts the law. And you're watching the power of the law, which should testify, you know, what the Lord is saying is right concerning righteousness and grace. But verse 9 is not saying that Christ himself sinned. It's not saying that knowing that Christ, we're called to know something, having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is mastery over him. And verse 10 is where it explains it further for the death that he died. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Again, verses 9 and 10. They're not saying, and I'll spend a little time, just a brief time on it. It's not saying that he's, that Christ himself sinned. It is saying, rather, there is no second or perpetual or continual crucifixion of Christ for those who continue in sin. He's dealing with those features of the power of the crucifixion and the power of his resurrection that have dealt with sin and the sin nature. He's saying it's a one time act. That Christ is a one time sacrifice. That we're dealing with one who is great and high priest for all time. And even when he appeals on our behalf to God the Father, it is done based on that one time act. We don't need to crucify him over and over and over again. That's a mark of that mindset is a mark of apostasy. Hebrews deals with that. It is it is only a one time act whereby Christ died and he effectively died for the sins of the elect and brought them to his salvation and secured their redemption and perfecting holiness. It is his power. He lived naturally upon the earth, born of the Virgin Mary, by the holy conception of the Holy Spirit, lived a sinless, holy, perfect life, died by crucifixion on the cross, whereby he laid his life down as a substitute for sinners and was raised up into eternal life. He himself is the giver of life. He himself is the source of life. He himself is the author and finisher of our faith and of life itself. But in all that, verse 9, what we're looking at is he destroyed the last enemy, death, in the annals of spiritual warfare. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He destroyed the annals of spiritual uh, death, which will be made manifest upon the earth at the end of the age for all who belong to Christ. We will see it collectively. Those who die in the Lord see it individually and testify to the collective and glory that it has taken place. But we will see it. We have faith that it's true. We have faith that when we close our eyes in death, if we truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are marked off as his and we repent of our sins and trust in him alone, that when we open our eyes, we behold sweet glory and eternal fellowship. We believe that we rest our entire existence upon that reality. But again, what he is dealing with, the relationship here in verses 9 and 10 deal with the relationship between sin and death, not some act that Christ had done. It's between sin and death and how Christ has proven conqueror over those things. 
For that is what Paul is comparing related to the life of the believer. Just as Christ died once and put an end to the mastery of death, so to the believer dies to sin. Dies to sin since Christ has also put an end to the mastery of sin over the life of the believer. I will tell you, the only way to misunderstand holiness in favor of the false teaching of sinless perfectionism and that false teaching teaches that you can stop sinning altogether in this life and reach a state of perfection. But the only people who raise that claim against true holiness are those who are in their lives completely set against Christ. They live a life of debauchery. They live a life of open antagonism to his cross. And yet they are perhaps even polished on the outside, but their lives scream defilement. The scent produced from them is spiritual death. But here, here, we don't step back and go, oh, that, that sounds like sinless perfection. No, it is holiness. He's calling us to live in such a way so that Christ is our conqueror, not sin and death. Not sin and, If sin is your conqueror, live for sin. Live for death. Do the things that earn you the wages of sin. But if Christ be your master and your conqueror, then live for him. And thus there's features of that life that are clearly explained. But these little theological nuances and misinterpretations that people want to make when presented with holiness, they do it from a heart that's completely wicked and set against Christ. It's not from misunderstanding. You don't have... People who have just come to faith, especially out of the dregs of the kingdom of darkness, and you call them to, hey, you have to live in obedience to Christ. You have to love him. You have to honor him. In those first moments of your fervor for Christ, you don't go, oh, that sounds like sinless perfectionism. You have to learn. You have to learn that mark of defilement that would accuse Christians of teaching that. You have to learn that. And you learn it by not doing away with the old man. You learn that charge and that accusation by holding and clinging to sin and polishing the outer man and living for the outer man only. And therefore, when someone presents you with the true standard, you recognize you've never left the world system. So now you have to abandon the world system for the first time. And now everybody knows that you have to abandon the system for the first time. And so now you have to renounce everybody in that system. But if you would just fall on your face before God and say, be my master, teach me holiness, teach me to live for you, teach me to live for that which is righteous. Forgive me for the sins I'm committing in the name of this false righteousness that I, that I have. If you live that way, you will live in true righteousness. You will live in true righteousness. And the only motivation I know I've said earlier that you don't need motivation, I mean, as 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 a continual pattern of people constantly having to remind you, hello, you're in sin. You're not obeying Christ. You need to obey Christ more. You don't need to do that with Christians continually because Christians are doing that. We're called to go out and and, and proclaim those things from a heart of obedience, from a heart of love and to love one another. And where we stumble, we do that activated by the Holy Spirit within us and our conscience testifying that it needs to be done. We encourage one another in these things. But I am providing these distinctions. It is a question of mastery. The believer dies to sin since Christ has also put an end to the mastery of sin over the life of the believer. 
Christ has done this and God the Father is also active in this sense and has confirmed Christ doing so. And Christ lives according to the perfect obedience he had toward God the Father by virtue of his deity and sonship. Although they are distinct in person, yet one in essence and being. But listen, that doesn't place it too lofty. What it does is it gives us a matter of emphasis because Paul is saying, well, then the believer too, the believer too, he belongs to Christ. He belongs to God, the father, and he is claimed as the father's own, just as Christ is because of your position in Christ. You have to live in the same way. You have to live in the same way. That is Paul's point in verses 9 to 11. But listen, here Paul is also clear for us to show us what has been done, has been done once, and it has been done to sustain us throughout all eternity. It is why you and I don't have to this morning commend ourselves before God on the basis of anything we did or didn't do this week. That we simply rest on what Christ has accomplished for God the Father on our behalf. And if we have in any way sinned against him or fallen short, we can go before Christ and say, forgive me. We don't have to put a partition between ourselves and men. We don't have to go confess to a priest. We don't have to go and set up counseling sessions. We simply go before the Father and say, please forgive me in the name of your son. And we go before the son and say, please forgive me on the basis of your work. And we are yet forgiven if we are his by virtue of what has already taken place and what sustains us. My point is what Paul is teaching is all of that is the feature, the source, the foundation of your sanctification. All of it. That is what you rest upon. Because there's one word that I must give to you. People who want to justify their sin hate this word. It's called efficacy. It means the degree to which something is effective. The efficacy of it. That this is effective. And guess what? It's effective for eternity. It is why as a Christian, you know. You know not only where you stand on the basis of the Spirit of God testifying to that in you. But you know you get a sense of, by discernment as it's practiced, you get a sense of, well, these people are saying they're Christians, but they don't look like Christians. You know. And it's why so many who don't look like Christians spend so much time telling you not to judge those things. But you know. Because Paul is calling upon what you know, not on the basis of comparing yourself to others, but on the basis of comparing the efficacy, the power of Christ's work to what you're seeing. So Christ did this and this is all powerful and it it sustains me. It produces righteousness in me. It produces holiness in me. Okay, so how am I conducting myself and how am I and, and people around me conducting themselves? And I would say for some of you, when you begin to know that and you begin to proclaim it, that the people who know you're on to them begin to also know that you're on to them. But it should be a means of ministry and testimony and evangelism to win people to him in this. I have people tell me all the time. And I don't like to rehash conversations, but this this is something that's important. They always tell me, you know. I'm a Christian or we're Christians, but not everybody here is Christian. And I always say, I know 
And they always look at me like they're surprised. But I know. I know that there are people. I don't know everybody in this situation, but I know there are people who are playing. I know that there are people whose lives don't trace back or testify or emphasize the power and work of his life and his resurrection. I know. I know there are people here that are just performing. I know that there are people in my midst who are just here because I'll just show up. I know that. But I also know who the Christians are because the Christians have a way of not just playing word games and you have to recognize my abilities. They always talk about what Christ has accomplished and they always live as though that's true. They don't rail off a catalog of I've done this, this and this because Christ needed my help. I've done this, this and this because Christ couldn't do it himself. And so now I have to testify to that. Christians speak of Christ and they live for him. So when I see that, I I, I know and I listen for a while to see how consistent it is. But I know when I'm dealing with Christians, I know when they have an appetite for his word and his truth. I know when they're not just trying to pass a course or ace a test. I know. But so do you. You know. You know, it is why you are called to proclaim holiness, to testify about it, because you're supposed to be well acquainted with it. More than anyone in this world. So he's clear about the efficacy of it. And that's what we deal with in efficacy. We see the power and working of Christ, but not only in others. Listen to me. This is a great encouragement for you. You see it in your own life. You see it in your own life. You see this. You see how Christ has not only kept you, but he's kept you in holiness and persevering holiness. You see that. You not only look back because so much of the old time religion tells you to look back at so much that you should have done, you could have done, you might have done. And that's a great thing for humility's sake. But you can begin to also look forward and see where he's bringing you. It's both and not either or. You see this pattern of his cleansing work in your life. But you too consider yourselves dead to sin. That's what he calls us to. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it deals with these questions. Who is your master? Something we all must answer. And I'm not challenging you in saying that your answer is to the negative. Praise be to God if you're saying God and Christ. The triune God is my master. But who is your master? Who do you obey? Whose voice provokes your nature? And what nature do you display according to your members, your body? More than this, especially for the believer, but more importantly for those who may believe themselves to be Christian, yet the life may present many contradictions. Those are important questions to ask. It's important questions to always be asking yourself. None of us are beyond the test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And none of us are beyond the joy that we will have when we have tested ourselves and God has proven us true. But I also say what I'm about to relate to you. If you are thinking these things and seeking earnestly the assurance of the Holy Spirit, if you're looking after these things and going, I need assurance this morning. I need to be encouraged in the faith that I am his. Listen, it is not so much only to consider for what Paul says in verse 11, to consider what Christ has done. 
For that is definitely what you must consider, and it is the only thing you must consider. But you must go further, especially related to verse 11. For he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. He answers what you ought to consider, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am talking about not only powerful Christians, but a powerful church. What I'm speaking of is a term that our brother as we first started, said, and it, it kind of quickened me a little bit when he said spiritual revolution. That's what I'm talking about. When people begin to actually relate the power of Christ to themselves. How do you consider yourself related to what Christ has accomplished? For this answers the most important question you ever need to answer. Am I a Christian? Have I been saved by the grace of God? That's what Paul is after. I could get into all the theological nuances of Romans 6 and create seminars for it. But what Paul is really after is, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's how. If not, here's how you've been led away and led astray from it. Here's how you are led to it. And here's how you walk in it. But essentially, do I live according to the power of the resurrection? I think we can win people who are living as antinomian. We can win them to the truth in this way. By having them relate what they're walking in to the power of the resurrection, or are they antagonizing the power of the resurrection? Because the resurrection happened. By consider, I mean it in the way Paul uses it. Grammatically, it's in the middle voice. It's something we do for ourselves. We have to consider this. But it is also present, therefore we must do it continuously. And the word is in the realm of not only decision, but listen to this. I think this unlocks it all for us. It's conclusion joined to action. I make a conclusion and that propels me to act. So when I consider myself to be dead to sin, it's not only that I have to think thoughts about it, consider it, journal about it. It's that I think about it, I recognize it, I make conclusions about it, and now I'm going to act in concert with what I know. Therefore, we must conclude, if we are his, how that causes us to, to live holy and to no longer be slaves to sin. Thus, to conclude is to act in accordance with it. That is what it means to consider. If I'm considering myself dead to sin and alive to Christ, I act as though those things are true. If I'm his, it's not enough to merely consider what Christ has done because you have this reflection, this self-imposed self-introspection movement, uh, I believe, created by evangelicals, uh, modern evangelicals such as Piper, his ilk and all the rest that come from him. And I don't mean evangelical in the sense that he is orthodox. But I mean it in this way, that people are telling people to sit back, sit in a chair, think about and reflect upon what Christ has done, and there's no action. Or if there is action, the action leads to emptying your pockets and giving men money or doing something else or attending what they tell you to attend. What I'm saying is, this verse isn't saying that. It's saying, consider what Christ has accomplished and live like he's accomplished it, and then live in holiness, and then the life now is joined to the action of what's been accomplished, namely, I am now walking in the newness of life. That's important. That is important that we all relate this back not only to, to, to the doctrine, but the doctrine that's joined to Christ. The doctrine of Christ. That's what drives us. So I mean it the way he means it and uses it. It's to live for Christ 
It's to live as though he alone holds eternal power over all things. It is to consider for yourself alone what he has done and test then if you fall under it. Do I fall under this? Because many preach to die for him, especially today. People are so revolutionary minded. Many are preaching to die for Christ, but yet do not themselves even live for him. So they're telling you to be ready to die for him. Everybody's rushing to prison, but they don't live lives that reflect him. Why die for the one you will not live for? How about live for him and die for him? Why embrace the cross but not embrace his teachings and his Christians? Because doing those things assumes you embrace his Christians. This passage weighs heavy upon my mind in the face of not only all that's going on in the world, but the rising personality cult of man that seeks to amass followers for himself. And it is not the first time in history that this has taken place. For after the great persecutions and purgings during the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire and power, many sought for themselves martyrdom for the purpose of leading people after themselves. And that was a badge of honor. And you know what the early church did in that sense? They went back to the baptisms. They went back to the baptisms. And they said these people have to be marked off in Christ. Publicly baptized in open confession that they belong to him. But I say all that I say. Especially... For those of you and those of us who sit on the positive side of this, that it is ammunition for yourself and for others. Because what I'm teaching is the full weight and full scope of the newness of life. It is not simply the so-called effort to try to live for Christ. So many say that, and there's a myriad of ways how people attempt it, and then they flame out and go try something else. Because so many are slaves to sin, and yet tell us they are trying to live for Christ. But that is the problem. You don't try. You do. Because he wills it so. He wills it so. And he has given the believer all he or she needs pertaining to life and godliness according to his divine power. Not our power or personal flesh driven persistence. And 2 Peter 1.3 talks about that. Here I bring in the witness of the other apostles. But Paul's case here is clear and it is clear in the next text and we will look at it next time. Because, listen, the issue that we are faced with today, and Paul's going to deal with this. Some make it seem easy to present yourselves to sin while making it seem difficult to live holy. And that's true if you're in the flesh. It is difficult to live holy if you're in the flesh and easy to sin. But John the Apostle said this. And I want to leave you with this as we look to our time next week in transition. John the Apostle said this, and I'm paraphrasing him largely in 1 John 5, 3. He said his commands, obedience to Christ, is not burdensome to the one who bears his likeness. It's not burdensome. So there are those who are unholy, dressed in religious garb, who make holiness burdensome 
and sinning so easy, it's why the standard is so difficult. But John says if you're his, it's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. Because of the one whose power works in us. Let's pray.